1979, a passenger jet carrying 257 people left New Zealand for a sightseeing flight to Antarctica and back. Unknown to the pilots, however, there was a minor two-degree error in the flight coordinates. This placed the aircraft 28 miles to the east of where the pilots thought they were. As they approached Antarctica, the pilots descended to a lower altitude to give the passengers a better look at the landscape. Although both were experienced pilots, neither had made this particular flight before, and they had no way of knowing that the incorrect coordinates had placed them directly in the path of Mount Erebus, an active volcano that rises from the frozen landscape to a height of more than 12,000 feet. Sadly, the plane crashed into the side of the volcano, killing everyone on board. Tragedy brought about by a minor two-degree error in the flight coordinates. If you're not familiar, experts in air navigation have a rule of thumb known as the 1 in 60 rule. It states for every one degree that a plane veers off its course, it misses its target destination by one mile for every 60 miles traveled. This means that the further, of course, the further you travel, the further off course you will be from your destination. Now, it might seem like just a little bit, right? At, at the beginning, you know, at first, you're, it's just one degree, all right, that's no big deal. After one foot, you only miss your tar- target by 0.2 inches. Not very much. In fact, we might say that's pretty good. After 100 yards, you'll be off by two or 5.2 feet, It's not huge, but it's noticeable at that point. After a mile, you're off by 92 feet. And if you continue going on that course just one degree off, and if you fly around the equator, you will end up 500 miles off target. Last week, we saw from Judges chapter 1 that the Israelites, they were experiencing blessing and victory in the lands. But we also noticed that there were what, what seemed like just little compromises here and there. Just, just little small things. Just this little incomplete obedience here. A, a disobedience to the command over there. And by the end of chapter 1, we saw a string of statements about various tribes failing to do what they were commanded to do. Failing to drive out the inhabitants in the land. And as we come into chapter 2, we find the fruit of those failures. Though perhaps it might have seemed like a small issue, those small failures have led the Israelites severely off course. One degree, again, doesn't seem like much, but it sets a trajectory that if left uncorrected, ultimately leads to destruction. But here's what we're going to see today. As we get into chapter 2, though the people have drifted off course and are increasingly becoming like the Canaanite world around them, God's faithfulness remains on full display. Though the people have drifted off course, God's faithfulness still remains on display through His loving confrontation of His people, even in the midst of His punishment, His deliverance, and His testings. If you've not opened your Bibles already to Judges chapter 2, I encourage you to do so as we begin to move through this text. First, we see the God's faithfulness in the confrontation of the people. Now, remember how chapter 1 ends. Each tribe has failed to drive out the Canaanites. They are drifting off their targets. They've gone off course. And that is the backdrop as we come into chapter 2 with the Lord's confrontation of His people. Judges chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give you to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars." 
but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I will say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. God's confrontation of the people for their failures to do what He has commanded them to do. The angel of the Lord comes before them. Now, the angel of the Lord, most theologians believe that this is none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. He has appeared to them, and the word angel might be better translated as messenger or envoy, but in any case, it's clear that this individual, he speaks for Yahweh. He speaks directly for Yahweh, thus says the Lord. And he tells them, he summarizes what God has desired from His people and how they have failed. He says, I've told you, like, this is what I have commanded you. This is what I have revealed to you. Don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Don't join in with them. This is not merely a prohibition against a geopolitical alliance. Right? This isn't just a, you know, don't join in the covenant with them. Don't, don't make a treaty with them. There's more at play here. It may start there. It may start with a simple geopolitical treaty, but it eventually leads to spiritual integration. Because notice the flip side of what the angel of the Lord has said. He says, I, 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 I will never break my covenant with you. Verse 2, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. The flip side of that, you shall break down their altars. Don't make a covenant. Instead, break down their altars. This is a spiritual charge. Refusal to enter into covenant necessitates the removal of the false gods. And this was to preserve a spiritual fidelity in the land. God was seeking to establish His people, His holy nation that would be wholly devoted unto Him. It was not enough for them to simply enter into the land and say, okay, well, those are the Canaanites. Let them do their thing over here, and we're going to do our thing over here. No, they, they had to break down the false gods. They had to remove the false gods from their midst. But have the people obeyed? No. They did enter into covenant with the people and they failed to remove the false gods. So God says, you have not obeyed my voice. As I was studying this, the passage from Romans 1 came to mind. It seems that the people have begun down this road. They, Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 22, says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up and the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I mean, Israel had a God who literally parted the Red Sea. They had seen countless miracles, countless things that God had done on their behalf. Now the people want to go play make-believe with these false gods of the land. Exchanging the truth about God for a lie. I mean, the Canaanite gods don't even talk, right? They have a God who has spoken. You have not obeyed my voice. I have communicated to you. I have told you what is right. I have told you what you are to do. I've talked with you, and here's the angel of the Lord is standing before them even now. And they're forsaking that for the sake of these false idols, forsaking the Creator for the creation. So God essentially says, okay, fine. If that's what you want, have at it. I won't drive out the Canaanites any longer. They shall be a thorn and a snare to you. 
It's interesting to note that even though we're going to see in the book of Judges that there are successful battles fought by the Israelites, it's never taking new territory. It is always casting off an oppressor or reclaiming what had already been secured in the past. It is never taking new territory. But what we should see, even with this pronouncement of judgments, God's faithfulness is still on display to the people. All right, the people are in sin, and so He confronts them on their sin. He doesn't just leave them in it. He doesn't just ignore them in it. He confronts them on it. He speaks to them. He shows them his, from His Word the commands that they were violating. God says, I have spoken. I have given you the command. Here is what I have commanded you, and you have not obeyed. God's faithfulness is on display in the confrontation. Friends, when we're being confronted with the Word of God, it's never, it's never really comfortable, is it? A lot of times it can be quite uncomfortable to discover how we are out of step with the revealed Word of God. But it is always an expression of God's grace to us when those moments come. When God shows us from His Word, when we are shown how our lives are at odds with His revealed will, it is always the grace of God in our lives. And such as it was to the people here, God shows that grace to the people. He he confronts them in their sin. He shows them, this is what I've commanded you to do, and you have not done this. And the people respond. They, They repent. They come before Him, they repent. It says they weep. They call the place Bochim, which literally means weepers. And apparently they were crying so much over this situation that they named that place over what had occurred there. They sacrificed to God. And we look at this and we read this and we're like, oh man, this is a really good response, right? Like the people respond. It's a good thing. We're, we're getting back on track here. Course corrected. Sadly, it seems as though this repentance was not a genuine repentance. No real changes were made. No real reforms were put into place. The false gods were not forsaken. There was no renewal unto the Lord. It seems this may be what Paul described as worldly repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes, says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It seems as though the people had outward showings of repentance, but clearly their hearts were still far from the Lord. And as we continue to read on, we see that on display. Look with me at verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Haris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. Now as we think about this this paragraph here, verse 6, in some ways it seems like an odd insertion into the story. I mean, don't we already have an account of the death of Joshua? Yeah. Yeah. We do. If we go, go back to Judges 1.1, 1, 1, we see these things. That this is what happened after the death of Joshua. And 
again, if we go back to Josh, at the end of the book of Joshua, we have an account of the death of Joshua. In fact, much of this paragraph, if you were to compare this paragraph in the account of the death of Joshua and compare it to the end of the book of Joshua, it's almost a word-for-word recopying here in the book of Judges. So you have to ask the question, why? Why is this here? Why, what is the author of Judges seeking to do? The author of Judges is trying to provide a level of continuity by interrupting the story and hearkening back to themes that are already present in Scripture. So he's connecting this back with, with the, the conclusion of the book of Joshua, and he's connecting things in and tying it in. He's interrupting the flow in order to remind us of past details that bear relevance to the moment. So we could illustrate it this way. If someone's telling a story and they're, they're getting to important details, they might break off of the story for a moment and say something like this. I was fishing, and there I was on the bank, and, and I, was, I cast my line, and then, hey, 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 you remember that one time that we were fishing in this one spot, and, and we did this thing, and we reeled in this fish? Well, it was just like that, except this time, what have I done? I'm telling a story. I break off from the narrative to hearken back to something that was already in the past, making a connecting point to what's about to continue to unfold in the story. That's what the author is doing here. The narrator is tying in the history. The people served the Lord as long as there was the godly leader, as long as Joshua was in place, and the elders, those who outlived Joshua, who had seen what God had done, as long as they were in place and lived, the people served the Lord. They saw the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. But after that generation died, the next generation didn't do so well. It says they did not know the Lord. They did not see His work. And now we have an introduction to the cycle of the judges that we will see unfold throughout the book. I want us to notice something about what the text says about their knowledge. It says they did, they did not know the Lord. Does this mean they did not know about the Lord? I don't think that's the case. Surely they knew about the Lord. Right? They knew who He was. The issue was that they didn't know Him personally. One commentator noticed how how this speaks of a disregard for the Lord. He sees a parallel here with this text and with the beginning of 1 Samuel, the sons of Eli, who similarly, that text says, they did not know the Lord. But we know Eli's sons were literally serving as priests in the tabernacle. They were corrupt priests, but they were priests, right? They knew about Yahweh. They knew who He was. The issue is not intellectual knowledge, but rather regard. And so, as this commentator puts it, he says, This generation, it did not know Yahweh or His works. That is, they did not acknowledge Yahweh. Yahweh and His works didn't matter to them. He had no influence over them. And this is the state of the generations that followed. Now, sometimes when we come into passages like this, we want to get caught up in all. Now, whose fault is this? Where can we lay the blame? Is this, is this the parents' fault? Did they fail to raise their kids and to teach their kids what, what they were commanded to do? It's possible. That may be an aspect of what's going on. Is it possible that the parents did all that they could to teach their children about the law of God, that they did what the great Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, commands them to do, where it says, these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise. Is it possible that the people did all that, they did all that they could to teach their children, and yet the children still chose to walk away from what the Lord has said. Yeah, we have to embrace it. That's a possibility. And it could very well be that, the, that these parents did seek to train their children correctly, but the children still chose to go astray. We aren't given all the details for exactly how this played out, so we need to be careful about how we approach that. However it happens, 
The children grew up without regard for the Lord, without personally knowing Him. And so the result is all out apostasy and paganism. And yet, we still see this thread of the faithfulness of God, despite the faithlessness of the people. Look at verse 11 where we see God's faithfulness in punishment. The people, did, the people of Israel did eat what was evil in the sight of the Lord and serve the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. They bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." We see the continued rebellion of the people as they have adopted the false gods of the lands. They've adopted the Baals and the Astaroth. Baal was the storm god. He controlled the rain. Him together with his goddess wife, Astaroth. These were the fertility deities. In Canaanite lands, if you wanted your crops to grow, if you wanted to bear children... If you wanted to be successful in whatever it is that you were doing, you had to get the attention of Baal and Astaroth. And in this mythology, earthly fertility was tied directly to heavenly fertility. Therefore, if Baal and Astaroth were engaging one another sexually, that meant good things for your crops and for your children, and so you wanted them to hook up more often. In order to do that, you would go to the temple and you would engage sexually with the temple prostitutes, seeking to awaken the desire in Baal to do the same with Astaroth. That's what's going on in this text. When God says, they provoked me to anger, this is why. This is what the people were embracing. You know, we we look around our culture around us today and we say, oh, sex sells, like it just does. Turns out that's always been true. That has been true for millennia. So no wonder the Lord's anger was kindled against them. And I just want to pause for a moment and say, okay, the anger of the Lord, I mean, Isn't our God a God of love? How how do we think about this anger? And there are people that would object to the concept of God being angry. Like, that's that's not, I I don't serve an angry God. I serve a God of love. What is anger? Anger is a response that we all have when we feel that an injustice has been done. Now, because of the fall, sometimes we have a distorted sense of what is justice and what is injustice. But nevertheless, that's what anger is. It's a response that when we believe an injustice has been done, we get angry. If you have been perfectly faithful to your spouse and yet they still cheat on you, we would all agree that you have every right to be grieved and even angry about that. Right? That, that, is, that would be a justified anger in the midst of that. Injustice has been done. How much more then should the God of Israel, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, who has done countless wonders for His people, how much more should He be angry when they have abandoned Him, as verse 12 and 13 say? They have abandoned Him and abandoned His care. In fact, the text, the way the text presents this in the book of Judges, it's emphatic about what's going on here. The anger of the Lord was kindled. They've abandoned God. Now they're serving these false sex gods. And so the Lord's anger was kindled. Yes, God has every right to be angry with His people. And so in judgment, He says, you want to be like the Canaanites? You want to serve their gods? Fine. Have at it. 
knock yourselves out, but know that I will not be fighting for you any longer. In fact, my hand is against you in judgment. But even in this, we see the faithfulness of God. God promised in the book of Deuteronomy that this is exactly what He would do if the people behaved in such ways. If you read Deuteronomy, if you read the book of Joshua, God promised blessings for obedience and punishments for rebellion. So even as God punishes His people, He does so in keeping with the promises that He made. He does so in faithfulness. The end result is that verse 15 says the people were in terrible distress. God has punished His people, but He still is a merciful God. He still is a loving God. Despite the anger, despite the, the righteous indignation that He experiences because of the faithlessness of the people, He is still a faithful God. And so we see another area of the faithfulness of God on display in sending deliverers, rescuers, the judges to deliver the people. God's faithfulness in deliverance. God could have walked away right then and there and said, okay, that's what you want. Enjoy. I'm done. And God would have been justified in doing so. The people would have blended in so much with the Canaanites that there would have been no Israel left to speak of. But He didn't. He didn't. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Again, this is God's mercy. God didn't have to do this. God shows His mercy, and now we, now we get to see the people repent and come back to Him, right? Right? They've had their hardship, they took their lumps, and now it's time for them to come home, correct course, get back on track. No, sadly not. Verse 17, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandment of the Lord, and they did not do so. Yeah, verse 17 is just such a gut punch after verse 16. God sent them the deliverers. He sent them the rescuers to save them from their distress. And how do they thank Him? Right back. They did not listen to their judges. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. See the cycle described right there in those verses. And so, verse 20, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and they have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. The language gets very strong in this text. They did not listen to their judges, but whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. The narrator speaks in graphic terms what it's like for the people to abandon their faithful God. I mean, it should be a foolish and unthinkable for us to imagine a scenario where, where the wife of a dutiful and faithful husband abandons him in order to pursue a life of prostitution. Like, it should be difficult to wrap our minds how that could happen. 
And spiritually speaking, that's exactly what the nation of Israel was doing. And in their case, sexual immorality was one of the outward expressions of their spiritual infidelity. And so the author uses this strong language. They hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. Does that language make you uncomfortable? Do you read that? Those aren't nice words. It's good. It should make us uncomfortable. It should bother us. It's supposed to bother us. This is an evil thing that the people have done. And so it should bother us when we see what they are doing. Even with the grace of God on display through the workings of the judges, the people still do not drop their package their practices or their stubborn ways, as verse 19 says. In fact, it says that after each judge, the people end up more corrupt than the previous generation. So, a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the cycle and how we, a lot of times it's, it's pictured as a circle, but rather it needs to be looked like a helix where it's a downward spiral down. Every time the revolution of the cycle goes around, it is a downward spiral And so God's pronouncement is stark. Notice particularly how God begins His words of judgment in verse 20. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He said, Because this people have transgressed My covenants, and then He issues His judgment. He says, this people. He didn't say my people. That's what He normally says when He speaks of Israel. He usually says, my people. He doesn't say that here. And the word that is used for people in the Hebrew, it's a word that is rarely used for Israel and is usually reserved for the Gentiles, the nations, everyone who is not Israelite. That word is usually reserved for the Gentile world. So when God says this people, that is a statement. He is lumping them in with the rest of the Canaanites because of their sin. They are no better than the rest of the world at this moment. They have forsaken the Lord. There's a distance that has been brought about because of the people's sin and apostasy. This brings us to the conclusion of the prologue, which enters into chapter 3, where we see God's faithfulness in testing the people. And Look at Judges 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which He commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses." So the people lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And when God was bringing the people into the land, He promised them, this is, again, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see God is talking to Moses, Moses is talking to people, this is what you can expect when you enter into the land. When you go in, I'm not going to drive out all the people all at once. Like when you step foot in the land, poof, all the people are gone. No, I'm going to do it in stages. I'm going to do it gradually. And the purpose for that is so that the the land doesn't become overgrown with predators and with overgrowth in the fields. It would make the land very difficult to settle into. But rather, he's going to do it successively, steadily, gradually, so that there wouldn't be a vacuum to be filled by predators, etc. Furthermore, if the future generations were to learn how to defend their land against outside aggressors, or if they were to continue to be obedient to do what God had commanded them to do to steadily drive them out, 
Well, they needed to know how to use a sword. They needed to know how to shoot a bow and arrow. And so God leaves these nations. He has multiple purposes in the midst of this, and He drives them, seeks to drive them out steadily, but here we have them left in the land so that they may learn over time, but it's also a test for the people. Would they be obedient? We know that this test was not so God could learn something new about the Israelites, right? That's wasn't God wasn't sure if they were going to obey or not, so I got to give them this test. No. Rather, I have this quote from Daniel Block that I think is helpful. It says, he says, the test is for Israel to give them an objective instrument that would declare to them the depths of their infidelity and the justice of God. This test was for Israel. God needed them to see where they fell short. God gave them every opportunity to be obedient. And so His faithfulness is on display, even in the midst of the testing, where He leaves them in the lands so they could see where they are falling short of His commands. They had something objective to measure, to look against. And as we know, they fail miserably. Look at verse 5. It says, The people lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In a sense, we could see that's, that's a summary of chapter 1. All right? The people had victory in the land. They were, they were, <coughs> excuse me, they were having uh, conquerings in the land, blessing in the land, and yet they didn't drive out this people. They didn't drive out that tribe. They didn't drive out that tribe. And so they were living among them. This, you could say, summarizes chapter 1. It lived among them, eventually becoming like them, which is what we see in verse Judges 3, verse 6. Their daughters they took for themselves for wives. Their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And we could say, in a sense, that that summarizes chapter 2. The people have become thoroughly canonized. They took the foreign gods for themselves. They bowed themselves to the Baals and the Astaroths, intermarrying with the people. So how is it that we should think about this text? We have this account, we have this prologue, this introduction to the book of Judges as we are going to see now in moving forward. We're going to see the cycles play out over throughout the rest of the book. First, as we have moved through and have seen the faithfulness of God, I hope that that's a comfort for you. In fact, on your handout, I gave that, that title of the comfort that we have in the faithfulness of God. Though the people have drifted severely off course to their own harm and have become increasing like the Canaanite world around them, God remains faithful. And if God has remained faithful to these wretches... Hey, there's hope for me. There's hope for you. And we see this, don't we? In our own lives, when He confronts us with truth, when we are studying God's Word and we're confronted with truth from His Word and it stings a little bit, like it's hurtful, like, oh, man, now i gotta, got to make these adjustments in my life and it's not always enjoyable. But He confronts us with His truth. God's faithfulness. When we sin and we suffer the consequences for our sin, God is being faithful in that. The Lord reproves whom He loves. We learn from the book of Hebrews. And He has provided the way of escape from our own sinfulness through Jesus Christ. And so His faithfulness endures to all generations. The faithfulness of God should be a comfort to us. But there's also a stern warning in this text. Compromise and increasing comfort with the world leads to cultural and spiritual integration, which leads to apostasy. 
Increasing comfort with a pagan world leads to cultural and spiritual integration with that pagan world, ultimately ending in apostasy. It didn't start how it ended, right? You go back to the beginning of Judges chapter 1, and and we see the victory and the conquest and the things that they're doing, and they're having success in the land. It didn't start with this conclusion of the people taking wives from the foreigners, they're giving their wives to them and taking their gods among them. It didn't start how it finished. There's a little compromise here, a little, a little getting cozy with the world there. Maybe you don't even see the fruit of that in your own generation, but it sows the seeds for apostasy to the next generation down the road. Years ago, there was a song that came out by the music group Casting Crowns, and I don't know what's going on with that group today, so if they've gone way off the rails, I don't know about it. But back when they first came on the scene, they wrote songs that that really packed a punch. Here's one of them. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade, choices made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Daddies never crumble in a day. Families never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. My guess is that we aren't We aren't tempted to go worship at the temple of Baal. Probably. But in a sense, the temple of Baal is in each of our pockets. With access to the internet, one internet search away. Our culture certainly is not less sexualized than it was back then. We don't have to go very hard to look for that. Perhaps it's not a desire to engage in sexual immorality of this sort or another, but perhaps it's just wanting to be like the world. We just want to blend in. And that's, that's something each of us want. You know, we don't, want to, we don't want to look like a weirdo, right? Like we go to work, uh, we go to the grocery store, we go wherever. We don't, look like, we don't want to look like a weirdo. We don't want to stand out. We want to blend in. We want to be thought of as cool, as current, and we experience incredible, unprecedented pressure from social media to blend in, especially, I think, for our youth today, that, just, that that pressure is just there. There are so-called church movements whose self-proclamation and desire is to use the attractions of the world to bring people into church. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. Worldly ideologies are being embraced in our homes and in our churches. They have no basis on the Word of God, and there are some evangelical leaders saying that this is a good thing. We're talking about a little bit about that for church today. There is a warning here in the book of Judges. We must heed the warning of James. James 4 wrote about this. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Try as we may, we cannot serve both. And desiring to serve God will cost us. But we're encouraged to count the cost. But know that knowing God and His faithfulness Knowing God and His faithfulness far surpasses anything that we could ever give up in order to be obedient to Him. And we just went through that when we went through the book of Philippians, right? Paul saying, these are all the things I gave up so that I may know Christ. This series through the book of Judges is titled, In Need of a King. When the people had a godly ruler, they followed the Lord. But when those rulers died, 
They abandoned. And even, even in that moment, even when they had rulers and, and judges that were over them, even those rulers had some serious shortcomings as well, right? We're going to see that as we move through. The people of Israel, they needed to submit themselves to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Truly, that's the only way out of this cycle. That's the only way out of that slow fade that drifts down is, is when we're confronted with the truth of God's Word, when, we're, when we see our need for the Savior, when we see our need for Jesus Christ. And we repent. We turn away from those compromises. We turn away from that desire to be like the world. And we come unto the Savior. So, though we must be on guard in our own hearts and lives against the compromises that will sow the seeds of apostasy in our children and our grandchildren, we must also rejoice in knowing that our God is a covenant-keeping God, that He is merciful, and that He has provided a way out of this cycle and has provided a way to correct the course. And it begins with embracing the Messiah, Jesus In a moment, I'd like to direct us just to a time of, of silent prayer and I'm not going to be asking for hands raised or walking down aisles or anything of that nature. But I do, I do want to ask you to examine your own hearts and your own lives for evidence of compromise. We are prone to try to minimize our own sin, say it's not that big of a deal. But remember, one degree off course, if we stay on that path, leads to ruin. So I just encourage you in, in this moment of, of silent prayer just to be examining and, and asking God to reveal to you areas of your life that may need a course correction. Could be with, with how you engage with people at work, in your community, in your home, how, how you do things at home, where you go online, what, what media you consume. Consider if there's anything that needs to be corrected before God. And for anyone listening either here now or someday in the future, or listening to this online perhaps, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, you need to know that that's the only way out of this cycle. It's the only way out of the cycle that we find in the book of Judges. The people needed a king, and God gave us that king when he sent Jesus Christ into the world. The people just couldn't keep the law, try as they might. They couldn't do it. They failed to do what the Lord had commanded. And we can't keep the law either. We are sinners by nature and by choice. But Jesus did perfectly keep the law. He did do what we cannot, and He offers for us forgiveness for our sins, entrance into His eternal kingdom, reconciliation with the Father, adoption into the family of God to all who will repent, repent of their trying to go their own way, and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Just like the people couldn't save themselves, they needed a deliverer. We can't save ourselves. We need a deliverer. We need someone who can break us out of our cycles of sin. And the only one who can do that is Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, if you've never trusted in Christ, to do so today. Yeah, let's go to this time of, of silent prayer and, and just consider in your own hearts anything that needs adjustment before God.
Father, you know that I stand up here today as a sinner in need of your mercy. Lord, I have not perfectly kept your word. Even as I have preached this message here today, I am aware that I preach to myself in the areas of my own life that need correction. I thank you for your word that confronts us. I thank you for your spirit who instructs us. And I thank you for your mercy through Jesus Christ who saves us. Lord, may we never get complacent with sin. May we never be comfortable in our sin. May we never, Lord, seek to be willing to drift into sin for the sake of fitting in with the world around us. Lord, we know that the more comfortable we get with the pagan world, the more we are prone to integrate with the world, to compromise, which ultimately leads to apostasy. Keep us from that, Lord. I thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who breaks us out of this cycle of sin. Lord, through faith in Christ, we have new life. Breaking the power of canceled sin, setting the prisoners free, that is what Christ does for us. Lord, as we see this testimony from the book of Judges, the people who have drifted so far from you, I pray, Lord, that you would call us to be nearer unto you, that we would not drift off course but that we would allow your word to teach us, to correct us, reprove us, and train us in righteousness, that we may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, drawing ever nearer unto you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.